Amen, amen, amen. Well, thank you so much, Cody and the worship team, for leading us so faithfully as y'all do every week. Y'all, it is so great to be with y'all this morning, this last weekend. I actually got a chance to preach at a D-Now, so I've been preaching to youth all week. So it's great to be back in front of my congregation and my people. I love youth, uh, but sometimes it is more fun to be back with your people, I guess you could say. It's great to be back in front of y'all this morning. If y'all would, open up to John chapter 6 with me. And if you're thinking John chapter 6 again, then yes, we're in John chapter 6 again. This is the final sermon uh, in John chapter 6, while I'm leaving probably five left on the table. But we're going to finish John chapter 6 this week, or today. I just want to begin by saying, y'all, ten and a half years ago, I read an introduction to a book that sent me on a journey that I, I never could have imagined. I read an introduction to a book that sent me on a journey that, honestly, I didn't even know that I needed. It was a journey that has changed my life forever, and a journey that I will forever be grateful for. And for the introduction to this sermon this morning, I want to basically summarize to you the introduction of that book. The book's titled, Not a Fan. It was written by a guy named Kyle Eidelman from, he lives in Louisville, is at a church there. I want to summarize to you the introduction that, that I read that, that began me on this journey that changed everything for me. You have to excuse me as I look at my iPad a lot because I'm going to walk through it uh, fairly succinctly, but I'm also going to do it in detail. So he says it's a Thursday afternoon before Easter. Easter's coming, and at his church they'll have over 30,000 people show up. He said he's been thinking, you know, what, what to say It's on a Thursday, and he still doesn't know what his sermon's going to be. He still doesn't even know what passage he's going to, and he's thinking, what can I say? You know, it makes the joke that oftentimes you call people creasters, they're the people that come around at Christmas and Easter. And he said, you know, I need something to make sure I can, I can say it in a way that will make them want to come back. I need to make, the, have a sermon that's going to get their attention. I need to make this message as appealing as I possibly can. What creative thing can I do? And he said, I'm sitting in the auditorium of thousands of seats, just wondering, God, what would you want me to say? He writes, finally a thought came to my mind. I wonder what Jesus taught when he had big crowds. He said he began to flip through the pages of God's word, and he says, what I found was that when the crowds were the largest, Jesus often preached a message that caused people to leave. When the crowds were the largest, Jesus often preached the hardest sermons. He speaks about one specific time where he goes to John chapter 6. He says, on this one such occasion, we must recognize, y'all, that Jesus is never more popular than he is in this chapter. Jesus never had a larger group of people that we know of that he talked to. Jesus never had a larger group of people in front of him, beckoning him, wanting to follow him, saying they're disciples of his. 5,000 men, plus wife and kids, 15,000, 20,000 people. And what we see, y'all, is Jesus spent a lot of time with these people. In Matthew, it says that he healed them before he ever gave them bread. In Mark, we learn that he taught them before he even gave them any bread. In Luke, he says both. He taught them, and he did miracles in front of them. Then at the end of the day, he fed the people abundantly with five loaves and two small fish. Y'all, people were loving it. Remember, they wanted to make him and make him king. 
The people were so enthralled with Jesus that they camped out in the wilderness overnight. They stayed there. In Kyle's words, he says, these people were massive fans of Jesus. There's no doubt about it. But you wake up the next day, and they see that he's gone. They don't know where he went. We know from God's word that was the night that he told the disciples across across the sea. Jesus walks across the sea, gets to the other side. These people go looking for him. They finally track him down. And what does he say to them? Chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them when they found him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They come to Jesus. Jesus clearly says, you're interested in me because you want free food. You want more food. So the question Kyle asks is, was it Jesus that they wanted, or were they only interested in what he could do for them? Were they only interested in the free bread, so to speak? Later on, we see Jesus actually gives them this offer. In chapter 6, verse 35, he says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And what we see is suddenly for this group of people, Jesus is the only thing left on the menu. He says, I am the bread of life. I'm not giving you any more food. It's me or it's nothing. So the crowd has to make a decision. Is Jesus enough, or do they want something else? What we see in John 6, verse 66, we get our answer. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That last phrase, no longer walked with him, in the Greek, it is a finite decision. This was the end. They decided no more, no more, no further is the root word meaning. That was the end of the line for them. They would no longer follow him. Personally, I can remember reading this and being really intrigued. I'd never heard this before. I never thought about this before. But what really got me was what he said next. He said, the crowd is leaving, and notice, what does Jesus do? Does he run after them? No. Does he change his message? No. He didn't say, wait. Come back, I'll do a masterful miracle. I'll have a big Sunday brunch and you all can feast all morning. Let's rethink this. Instead, what does Jesus do? Verse 67, it says this. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Now think about this. Crowds are leaving. Thousands of people are leaving. And instead of trying to do something to keep them, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, here's a grand opportunity if you want to go too. Jesus doesn't address the people that are leaving him. He addresses those who are right in front of him. And I'll quote Kyle whenever he says this. Jesus seems okay with the fact that his popularity just plummeted. He said, as I sat there in an auditorium with thousands of empty seats, this is what became clear to me. It's not the size of the crowd that Jesus cares about. It's their level of commitment. Eventually, I realized that what I'd been doing on these big Sundays is I was preaching a gospel, and and in doing so, I was doing my best to hand out a lot of free bread. He goes on to explain it this way by using an analogy about his daughter. I'll personalize it, I guess, to make it a little bit easier. Because I want you to imagine it this way. I have a two-year-old daughter, I mean a four-year-old daughter right now. Imagine 21 years from now, she's 25 years old. She's graduated college. She's out doing whatever she's doing. 
And she tells me, Dad, I just really wish I could find somebody. I really want to get married. Now imagine if me, as her dad, said, you know what, I want to I help her with this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take out an ad in the newspaper and tell them about my daughter and ask people to date my daughter. I'm going to put a billboard on 12th Street. I'm going to run a few ads on Facebook. Not only would I do that, I'm going to add some incentives to it. If you take my daughter out, I'll pay for your meal. If you take my daughter out, I'll pay for your gas. If you take my daughter out, I'll rent you a fancy car so you can drive around in style. If you take my daughter out, I'll make your life better, whatever I have to do. Now, I don't have to tell you this, but wouldn't that cheapen who my daughter is? Wouldn't it make it seem like if someone dated my daughter, they'd be doing her a favor? Wouldn't it make it seem like they would be doing her a favor? But let's be honest, guys. If you have a daughter in this room, you know for a fact you wouldn't do that. Instead, you would do the exact opposite. I could tell you what I would do. If I could, I would background check any sucker who tried to date my daughter. He would be around my dinner table, and he would be grilled. I would tell him I'd make it abundantly clear. If you want to date my daughter, this is what you need to know. You better treat her like this. You better do this for her. And if anybody gets brave enough to come to me and say, hey, I want to marry your daughter. Can I have her hand in marriage? I will do what Tony Evans did. I'll make them sign a covenant. I'll make them write an essay of what does it mean to be married. I'll make them answer the questions, how committed are you to my daughter? Are you committed to her no matter what comes? When you say I do to her, do you mean it? I tell you this, I do everything in my power to help him recognize the jewel that he has in front of him. To quote Kyle again, he says, often, I accidentally made it sound like if you came to Jesus, you'd be doing him a favor. In so doing, I accidentally cheapened what God calls us to. Too often in my preaching, I try to talk people into following Jesus. What I mean by that is I try and make him as appealing and comfortable and convenient as possible but oddly enough, whenever I look at what Jesus did, he did the exact opposite. I tried to make it convenient, while Jesus did not. He made it clear that you need to be committed. One of the ba- main phrases in this is Jesus is not interested in casual admirers of him. He wants to know, are you committed to him? Now, one thing we always see with Jesus is he never holds back. Never. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He says stuff there. His disciples are shocked, and this happens often. He says clearly, following me will cost you your life. He says, if you don't hate your father and mother and brother and sister and compared to your love for me, then you don't want to follow me. He says that and expects people to still do it. What we see is Jesus does not change his message to make it more appealing. Look at what he does and says, verse 60 and 61. It says, when many of his disciples heard all that he'd said, the bread of life discourse, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? You know, Jesus doesn't take a step back. He takes a step forward. He says, do you have a problem with this? Do you have a problem 
with what I'm saying, y'all, Jesus makes this much clear. There are not different levels of commitment in following him. You are either all in or you are all out. You're either committed to him or you are not. And y'all hear me, this radically rocked my life. You know why? Because I had to ask hard questions of myself that, one, I either never felt the need to ask, I was too afraid to ask, or I just didn't want to ask. I couldn't rest on my occasional good deeds and my service to God anymore. I couldn't say, I know I know Jesus, because I got commissioned as a missionary for a whole summer. I know I know Jesus, because out of a group of a large college students, I got promoted to teach advanced Bible study. I know I know Jesus. The issue is, is occasional good deeds don't make me a Christian. Now, in this whole process, I learned what it meant to be a Christian, and for me, I recognized I was not one. To use the terminology of Kyle Eidelman, I was a fan of Jesus, a fan of what he did for me. I was a fan of going on the mission trips. Of course, it made me look good. Of course. Yeah, I wanted to help people. Yeah, I wanted to do those things. I was a Christian. You know, that's what I'm supposed to do. Whenever I stripped everything away, I didn't know him. I was not a follower of him. The title of the sermon this morning is Missing Jesus. Missing Jesus. And what we see in John 6 is nothing less than a discourse of false disciples versus true disciples. And we're going to walk back through this and ask some tough questions. How did professing disciples in Jesus eventually reject him and no longer walk with him? How did the true disciples of Jesus respond to him? And you know, I would tell you before we even jump in, it should not be shocking for us to ask questions like this. It should not be shocking for us to think, is it possible to miss Jesus and think you have him? Y'all, whenever Jesus was on earth, the majority of people rejected him. People who saw him, saw his miracles, saw what he did, heard him teach, they rejected him. One of his own disciples rejected him. And y'all would tell you this, the devil would love nothing more than in the church of Christ to deceive people in this one area. So I would ask you, as I pray for us, will you look in the mirror this morning? Will you be willing to ask yourself the hard questions? Will you listen to Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, my hope and prayer is clear this morning, that your word would speak loud and clear. Put your words in my mouth. Keep my words out of yours. Help me say what the text says, nothing more, nothing less. Help us, God. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to respond to you. We ask all this in your precious and your holy son's name. Amen. So the first question is, how did they miss Jesus? How did they miss Jesus? Well, look back towards the beginning of John 6, at verse 14 and 15. We see Jesus just multiplies the bread, multiplies the fish. They eat all that they want. They pick up 12 baskets left over. And look at verse 14 and 15 of John 6. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
Now, the first way that we see that they missed Jesus is they worshipped the gift rather than the giver. The first way we see that these people missed Jesus is they worship the gift rather than the giver. You know, after they saw this sign, they were ready to make Jesus, bring him in and make him king. Now to be clear, these people had already seen signs. John 6 verse 2 says they were following him because of the signs that he was doing. We see that he healed people. He taught them all day. What was it about feeding them that made them say, we need to make him king, take him king, and make him king by force? What, what changed? Well, to put it simply, I would say food speaks, right? Food speaks. It is a need that everyone understands. It is a need that everyone desperately needs, right? Think about it this way. Jesus healing a leper, some people would go, man, that's incredible. But if you've never had a terminal illness, you don't know what it's like to be healed from it. You may see Jesus take a blind person and make them be able to see. Some would understand, but only those who have trouble seeing, right? They are really the ones that can relate to that. If you've never had an issue with seeing, you don't understand what it's like to be blind and then be able to see. What about Jesus taking a lame man and making him be able to walk? Some would understand. Those who are lame, those who aren't able to walk, they would understand. But what about people who can walk? But then think about food. Doesn't everyone know the feeling of being hungry and then being filled? Y'all, we cannot underestimate just how massive this miracle was in the first century. You see, you and I see this, and if we aren't fed bread, we could just go down and grab some at a, at a local place, right? We could go just pick some up. We've got fridges at home. We've got freezers at home. We probably have food in our house that we could eat on for a week, for months maybe. These people had none of that. In the first century, it was very common to wake up and not know how many meals you would have that day. They didn't have the late night snack whenever they wanted it, just food whenever they wanted it. It was hard work. It took work. Culturally, getting food was difficult, and it was common to go on an empty stomach. It was rare to have a full stomach, to be stuffed like what Jesus just did for these people. This miracle meant something to them. It filled a massive need. Now think about what they were thinking. If he can feed all of us with practically nothing, y'all think about it. What could he do? No more hunger. No more work on our part. This is our ticket for provision for life. We need to grab him by force. We need to make him king. If he's king, he could heal people. He could provide for people. He could give us all the food we want. Work is done. Work is no more. Rome would have no choice but to bow down to him because they can't do that. And in this process, they worship the gift. They worship what God could do for them rather than the giver. Jesus himself. Verse 26 again, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They came to him because they wanted more food. The gifts are what they were after. And in doing so, they missed Christ. I want to ask you this morning, what about you? If you say you're a Christian, I want to ask you, what are you seeking this is one of the most predominant themes in the book of John. So predominant, there are seven different times where you can look to an aspect of people miss Jesus because they're seeking the wrong thing. What are you seeking? 
Are you after the gifts or are you after the giver? I would ask you to think through these questions. Let me flesh this out a little bit more. Do you desire God to bless you with something or is God enough? If everything was taken from you, would you still say God is enough? Do you come to church or serve him in order for him to give you something? Is it about self-improvement or embetterment? Are you just looking to have a better life? Are you hoping to get a blessing in some way? Is your relationship with Jesus transactional? God, if I do this, I expect this. If I come to church, I expect you to do this. If I read the Bible, I expect you to do this. If I pray, I expect you to do this. Do the blessings of the Lord draw you closer to him? Or do they make you worship the blessings? Your talents. The stuff that you have. Your success. Your family. Your relationships. Do you worship these things or do you worship him? You know, and I'll be honest, oftentimes you don't know which one you serve until you go through a test. You want to know what's inside of you? Look at what happens when stuff hits the fan. And if you go through a test, do you cling to God? Do you stick with God? Tests expose what is really inside of us. What happens whenever the gifts get taken? What happens whenever trials come? And even worse, what happens whenever success comes? Is God there just to make sure nothing gets messed up? Do you worship the gift or do you worship the giver? Are you here for him? Are you here for what he can do for you? Why did they miss Jesus? One, they worshiped the gift rather than the giver. Two, they misunderstood their true need. Number two, they misunderstood their true need. Already said it once, but y'all, the first words that Jesus ever speaks in this gospel are this. What are you looking for? What are you seeking? This question must be pondered as you walk through the book of John. What are you seeking? What are you looking for? We must ask this question of ourselves because here's the truth, y'all. Whatever you are seeking is what you perceive to be your greatest need. Whatever you're looking for is what you think is your greatest need, the thing that you think you need. Even here, what did they think they needed? They thought they needed provision. We need food. We need a political leader. We need a social leader. We need a judicial leader. I'm going to ask, did Jesus see any of these things, any physical things, as the greatest need in our lives? You've maybe thought about this before. Maybe you haven't. Y'all, imagine this. If Jesus wanted to, he could have solved world hunger, and he didn't. If Jesus wanted to, he could have done away with all injustice, and he didn't. If Jesus wanted to, he could have taken care of every single governmental problem, and he didn't. He could have taken care of all health care issues, and he didn't. All struggles and pains, he could have eliminated them, but he didn't. All sickness and disease, he could have done so, but he didn't. He could have done whatever he wanted to, but he didn't. Why? Because had Jesus done all of these things, but not paid for our sin, we would have missed what our true problem actually is. Y'all hear me. If Jesus makes everything in your life physically better, but you don't realize your greatest need is salvation, to be forgiven for your sin, to be reconciled, reconciled back to God, then you've missed it. It doesn't matter how great the world around us is. We can make the world as good as we want to make it. The problem still remains. Sin is the issue. 
And they wanted Jesus to be something that he wasn't. I love the way Edmund Clowney says this. They wanted Jesus to go to Jerusalem to wield a spear and bring judgment. But Jesus said, I came to receive the spear and bear the judgment. So they had to understand that their true need was spiritual. It was salvation. And let's be blunt. Jesus tried to show them this over and over. He tried to make it as clear as day. This is what you need. You need salvation. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. They run all the way around the Sea of Galilee. Catch up to them. And he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then flip over to verse 47. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, what does Jesus do? One, you could preach a whole sermon from this text just about the compassion of Jesus. A group of people he heals and instructs all day, then feeds them fully, knowing the next day they're going to reject him. What kind of compassion does our Savior have? But why did he feed them? He wanted them to see that that food is not going to heal the issue. You're still hungry. But what I want you to see is that I can fill your heart and your life. I can satisfy you forever. Now, you can go to quote after quote where Jesus talks about this. Matthew 5, 6 is just one of them. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. Come to Jesus and you will be filled. But the issue is they didn't see it as their primary need. Y'all, in our world today, we take that word need and we apply it to way too many things. The Bible is clear. You and I have two needs. True needs. And that's to worship God and to obey him. Any other need stems out of that one. But if you have nothing else in life, but you worship God and obey him, if you have nothing else in life and you die, you had all the needs that you needed. We need Jesus. He is the need of our lives. He is the way to salvation, to a relationship with God, not just heaven. Y'all, look, you see this. Jesus is salvation. It isn't just he's saying, hey, I'm the way to get to something else. John 17, 3, he says, I am, knowing me. This is what eternal life is, to know me, Jesus Christ, and to know God the Father. What is eternal life? It's not about going somewhere. It's about knowing someone. It is about a person. How do you have salvation? You know Jesus. Where can you find salvation? You come to Jesus. He's just not just a road to get somewhere else. He is everything. Do you realize that this is your greatest need? That life is only found in him. Why did they miss Jesus? One, they worshiped the gift rather than the giver. Two, they misunderstood their true need. And three, this is the nail in the coffin that is beckoned throughout this whole chapter. and They just weren't willing to listen to the scriptures or to Jesus. Hear that again. They weren't willing to listen to the scriptures 
or to Jesus. Look at what happens with the scriptures. I told you last week I'd come back to this passage. John chapter 6, verse 44 through 46. Look at what Jesus says to them. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I told you last week that what is being talked about here, I'm not saying that the Spirit does not have to draw us. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that's not what Jesus is saying here. I'm saying Jesus is talking to a group of Jewish people, telling them that God the Father draws people to himself. You can't come unless you are drawn. Then he explains how they have been drawn. He explains why they should have understood. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. He says, no one comes to the Father, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. How has the Father drawn them? Well, in the prophets, he says, they'll be taught by God. And those who hear will believe in him. Those who hear and who learn will come to me. I asked you several weeks ago, why in the world do you go from John 5 in the middle of Jerusalem, in the middle of the holy city, you zoom out, John 6, John jumps all the way to months later, John chapter 6, in the middle of the wilderness. Why? Why is he doing this? Y'all, he's connecting John 5 and John 6, and he's saying the same thing. You're not listening. Let me explain what I mean. How does John chapter 5 end? Look at verse 39 and 40 in John chapter 5. Once again, he's talking to Jews. Verse 39. He tells them, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet what? You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Skip down, verse 46 and 47. He says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, what is Jesus saying? Why does John take us from there, zoom all the way out, bread of life discourse, hear what Jesus is saying. Jesus does what Moses did, but just did it better. Fed people with his own power, walked across the water. He didn't have to split the water, he just walked right on across it. He did it better, saying, I'm greater than Moses. Connect it back to John 5. But what else is he saying? He's saying, you're not listening. God gave them a whole 1,500 years of history telling them one is going to come. One is going to come. An anointed one is coming. A Messiah is going to come. This is what he's going to look like. And y'all look, they knew the word well enough to have some idea of what he would look like. Look, this is what they say in John 6, verse 14. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is coming to the world. These Jews knew enough to say, this is the one we've been waiting for. But where's the issue in this? If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, Deuteronomy 18, I want to show you in verse 15 and 19. I'll have it up on the screen for you. It says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among you, from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. So when you find the prophet, what must you do? Give him your ear. Verse 19, I myself, God, 
I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Yo, they knew the word well enough to know that a prophet was coming. They identified Jesus as a prophet, but what did they do? Instead of listening to him, they try and grab him by force and make them who they want him to be rather than who he is. They haven't listened to the word of God. They want to make Jesus who they want him to be, the God that they want him to be, the Savior that they want him to be, the Lord that they want him to be, not because of who he is. They're not listening to him. Yo, they reject him because they haven't heard or learned from the Father. 39 books in the Old Testament. These people would have known them well, but they missed the very one that it pointed to. Instead of listening to him, they wanted them to be who they wanted them to be. Friends, hear me. Hear me, please. This is unfortunately how many have approached Christ even today, and this is not Christianity. What does this look like today? It's when we take Jesus and we make him what we want him to be. It's when we don't listen. Instead, we think if he is God, then he should do these sort of things. We put God in our mind and say, what kind of God do I need? Let me pick a God that will meet my needs and do what I want him to do, rather than listening to him. Instead of bowing down, we bring requests and expectations. Jesus, I'll follow you as long as you do this. We make Christianity what we want it to be, rather than what the word says it actually is. One pastor in Texas, Matt Carter, on this text, he says this. He said, by nature, we want the kingdom without the king. We want the liberty without the liberator. We want all the blessings Jesus can secure us without actually having to obey and follow him. That's not Christianity, friends. And I'd ask you this morning, have you listened to him? Have you heard the gospel that is in the Bible? Have you heard the gospel according to Jesus, not the gospel according to us? Do you worship Jesus as he is or how you maybe have made him to be? Or who someone else maybe has said that he is? Listen, we can be led astray. Friends, I will tell you this all day and all night. Whatever you hear from me, I am bound to the word of God. If I am wrong, bring it to me. Bring it to me. And what I would tell you is with Christianity, we must come to the word of God and say, what does Jesus say it means to be a Christian? If it seems radical to you, we don't get to choose. Jesus doesn't run after the popular vote. Jesus doesn't run after the crowds. He's not saying, hey, please, come back, come back. Let me change what I'm trying to say. No, he says, this is what it means to follow me. Is this a hard saying for you? Do you want to follow me or do you not? To put it short, we must look at the word of God. And we must listen because even now, the word of God is the way God communicates to us. The Spirit of God ignites our hearts, yes. Convicts us of our sin, yes. But where does truth come from? Friends, you must know the gospel, the good news of Jesus, in order to believe in him. Where is the gospel? It is here. In the end, what we see is they rejected him. Once people who loved him, or seemed to love him, wanted to make him king, no longer followed him. You know, the saddest part of all of this, don't miss this. Think about what these people could have said. They could have said, we have personally experienced the provision of Jesus. And yet these people turned back. They personally 
seen many signs of Jesus, and yet they turned back. They had personally listened to the teachings of Jesus, and yet they turned back. They had personally experienced Jesus face to face, and yet they turned back. They had personally been pro-Jesus, all about Jesus, and yet we see that they turned back. But what I want to tell you is a lot of people may say, I'm, I'm a Christian because of something along these lines. I know God's provided for me. Okay, well, just because you know a truth about God doesn't mean you know him. I know God's never left me. Okay. I know Jesus loves me. Okay. Yeah, you can say that. You can know that and not believe. I know Jesus is the way for salvation. Okay, you can know that. But the question is, have you believed? Have you put your weight into those claims? Have you staked your life on those claims? I've heard it put this way, and I think it's a very easy way to think about it. Y'all, if you, if you went up in an airplane and somebody gave you a parachute and said, hey, if you jump out, pull this string, this parachute will open up and it will save you. Look, you can say all day, I believe in this parachute. You can Google with the free Wi-Fi on the airplane and learn all about the parachute. You can figure out how the parachute works. You can go to admire the parachute. You can paint the parachute whatever color you want it. But hear me, when you actually believe in the parachute, you do what? You jump. You pull the string. Y'all hear me. Whenever you put your weight into Jesus is whenever you believe in him. You jump out and you say, I'm no longer trusting in myself. I'm putting all of my weight. I'm staking all of my claims on this, that Jesus died for me. I'm staking all of myself on this, that Jesus rose for me. I'm staking all of my life on this. That just as Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A person who understands it will go and sell everything that he has just to get it. It's that valuable. Is that incredible that Jesus says, you know what, if you don't love me more than your family and everybody else, then you don't understand me. You're not worthy to follow me. If you start with me and you turn back, you're not worthy to follow me. Jesus says so many hard things, but whenever you see Jesus for who he is, you realize he's the only one you can put your weight into. And yet they didn't believe. Yo, I've wrestled with this question over and over and over and over and over again. Why did Jesus not run after them? Why didn't he change the message? It's because this, Jesus doesn't change the message for anyone. He's the truth. He doesn't give incentives to make it more appealing to come to him. His offer is simply this, me or nothing. He doesn't promise lavish living. He doesn't promise health, wealth, or prosperity. He doesn't promise ease. He said, you get something better. You get me with you through whatever you go through. get me. That's all I'd ask you. What about the disciples who are still there? How do they respond to Jesus whenever he says, do you want to go away too? Look at verse 67 through 69. 67 through 69, Jesus just says, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well. Think again, y'all. This would have been the easiest out for these guys. Thousands of people are leaving. What would they do? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
It's you that have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And here we see how do true disciples respond to Jesus. One, they say this, we are here for you. We are here for you. Notice the first thing out of Peter's mouth. He goes, Lord, who else would we go to? He says, to whom? Meaning, what other person? We've come to know that you are the Son of God. We believe that you are the Son of God. Now, let's be honest. These disciples did not understand all that Jesus was teaching. They struggled. We see it over and over and over again, but they said, we don't care. We're sticking with you. Whatever you say, we're sticking with you. He's saying, you are our one and our only. They're saying that we firmly believe that you are the way to life, regardless of how we feel about a teaching, we're sticking with you. They stay because they say, Jesus, you are the only one worth following. Once again, Matt Carter says it this way, true disciples come to Jesus because he is the prize, not to get prizes. They come to Jesus because he is the prize, not because he dispenses prizes. There's only one way to come to Christ, and it is for him. But we see the second thing they say here. He doesn't just say, he doesn't just say, to whom shall we go? He says, you have the words of eternal life, which is the second thing the true disciple says, is we believe in you. One, we are here for you. Two, we believe in you. They believed that in Jesus was life. As opposed to the other group who would not listen to Jesus, they listened. And they believed him. We believe what you're saying is true. Even if we don't understand some of the stuff, we believe. Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe in you regardless of how hard a teaching might be. We believe in you regardless of whether or not you're popular. We believe in you regardless of anything. You are who we need. You have the words of eternal life. In other words, y'all, you could bundle it all down to this, and I'll have this last point on the screen for you. True disciples are committed to the Lord Jesus. Case in point, true disciples are committed to the Lord Jesus. They seek to follow him because they believe in him. Now, their belief that they've professed with their mouth, they live up to by living it out in their life. They don't just say they believe in Jesus. They follow him. They are committed to him. Y'all, this is what a Christian is. The idea that somebody could be a Christian without actually following Jesus is foreign to the Bible. It is foreign to the Bible. Jesus never calls us to be Christians. That's a word that's added later from people that aren't even Christians. Jesus calls us to be disciples. I heard Francis Chan put it this way one time. He said, think about the great commission of Jesus. He says, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. He doesn't say at the end, but if that's too much to ask, just settle with being a Christian. He says, go make disciples. Teach them to obey me. Show them how to walk with me. Show them how to follow me. Y'all hear me. This is the whole reason that John wrote this gospel. It is the primary reason he wrote the gospel. If you remember, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he says, I've written these things to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
that it will change you, that you'll live for him. His main point throughout this whole gospel is I want you to know what it looks like to believe. True belief leads to obedience, always. Y'all hear me, I told you earlier, don't just take my word for it, listen to what the word of God says. Listen to what he has to say about it. We could go to dozens of passages in the book of John. We could go to several passages that John just writes about in his other epistle. I'll take you just to one. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, listen to what he says. And by this we know. 1 John 2, verse 3 and 4, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying your assurance in knowing that you know Jesus is look at your life. Has he changed you? Hear what he says. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And then John, in Jesus-like fashion, doubles down. Verse 4, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. It doesn't get much more clear than that right there, guys. And you can look over and over and over again. This is the predominant thing that's being said all throughout the book of John. It's just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean you are. What does your life say? Does your life reflect what you say you believe? Now, I want to be clear. You might go, Merrick, are you saying that we must obey Jesus in order to know him? No. I'm saying if you know him, you'll want to obey him. I'm saying if you have a relationship with him, y'all, sin stings differently whenever you recognize that my sin is what drove the nails in the cross. It stings differently in your life. That doesn't mean that you can't mess up. That doesn't mean that you can't struggle. It means you seek to follow Jesus. I'm not saying that we must obey him in order to know him. I'm saying if you know him, then you will obey him. Y'all hear me. This is what Jesus says over and over and over. Think about one of the most famous passages we'll get to in John chapter 10. It talks about a shepherd and sheep. Some people go to it and they say, you know, Jesus here says that, that anybody who's his sheep, you know, he'll never lose them. And I'll say, you're right. He will never lose any of his sheep. But what are the characteristics of the sheep? Right before he says that, John 10, verse 27, he says this. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and what do the sheep do? They follow me. My sheep hear my voice, I know them. In other words, they listen to me. How do you know you're a sheep? You follow him. Take it from Jesus. Read John for yourself. Read it over and over again. It is like an anvil. He continues just to bang on it. Belief leads to life, not just out there, but here in the here and now. Sheep follow the shepherd. It's what they do. Believers in Christ will seek to follow him, and there won't be just some cutting off point in their life. They don't unfollow him at some point if they really are following him. A Christian is one who believes in Jesus by committing to follow him with all of their life for the rest of their life. In other words, what happens in this story in chapter 6 does not happen to a true disciple. You don't just follow Jesus for a season or follow him for some point. You stay committed to him and you live for him. In other words, those who fall away prove that they aren't true disciples. What does the parable of the sower teach us then? This is crucial for us to understand. John even talks about this. Y'all, once again, if you want to look for that point, look. It's all over the place. 1 John 2.19. John's talking about people who were a part of them. And look at what he says. 1 John 2.19 on the screen. He says, they went out from us. 
but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, what would have happened? They would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are, but that they all are not of us. What is John saying? What is he saying? Y'all, it's crucial to understand this. There are not different levels of commitment in following Jesus. You can't retire from this commitment. You can't grow out of this commitment. You can't say, well, you know what? While I'm in high school and in college, I'm just going to have fun and do life my own way. Y'all, what does this attitude show? It shows that you don't trust Jesus. You think life is still out there. You can't say, well, you know what? I'll just wait till I have kids and then I'll bring them to church because they need to learn about Jesus. You can't just say that. What does that attitude say about you? It says you're saying, I've been there. I've done that. I've got Jesus. I'm good. I've got enough to get to heaven. That's good for me. You can't go in and out of your commitment to Jesus. Now, I want to be clear. Can you struggle as you follow Jesus? Absolutely. Can you get distracted while following Jesus? Absolutely. Can you become apathetic in following Jesus? Absolutely. Can you struggle? Yes. But you never stop being committed to him. Y'all, can you imagine on somebody's wedding day, you tell two people to come down to get married. And before I say the vows, I say, hey, guys, today you don't really understand what it means to be committed to each other. You'll really understand 20 years from now. So right now, be 50% committed. That would be crazy, right? When you marry someone, you are 100% in, right? When you say the vows, when you say I do, you're saying I am committed. My life, all of it, ups, downs, whatever. I am committed, right? Yo, whenever you come to Jesus, that's what you say, God, I'm committed to you. That doesn't mean you don't struggle. Guys, we know this. In marriage, just because you say that here, you say I do and you walk out, are all of a sudden the two people perfect now? You never have stupid arguments, right? You never get your feelings hurt over silly things. You never say something to one another, hurt each other. No. No, you do. You mess up. But what do you do because you're committed? You come back together, right? It's the same in your relationship with Christ, friends. If you're committed to him, yes, you may go off the boat, but you don't stay off the boat for long. You come back. You stay committed to him. Your real disciples profess their belief, their dependence, their reliance, their trust, their commitment in Jesus, and then they live like they actually believe it. You know, Paul says it like this. Many of you probably know this verse in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Flesh out, what is that saying? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you know, what do you think that means? It means I'm submitting myself to him. If he is Lord, that means he's on the throne of my heart. I'm not on the throne of my heart anymore. I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm committed to live for him. What's it mean that if you believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you'll be saved? If you believe that you are worshiping a Savior who didn't stay in the grave, he rose from it. You're worshiping someone who you believe died for your sin, didn't just stay in the grave, but defeat death. And in the same way, you're saying, God can do this in me. Confess, submit to him. Believe in him. I know what he's done for me. I believe that he paid the penalty for me. I believe my sin is what put him on the cross. I believe he completed the task for me. Y'all, Philippians 2 says this. One day, everyone will bow down 
to Jesus. And from the mouth of every person, this phrase will be said, Jesus Christ is Lord. The question this morning is, which side of the grave are you going to say that on? Will you say it on this side? By bowing down in worship or on that side and trembling in absolute terror and fear because you realize you missed it. Do I ask you this morning, are you a real disciple of Jesus? Are you a follower of His? Have you believed in Jesus? Have you placed your trust in Him? Have you committed your life to Jesus? What are you seeking? They wanted Jesus for what they wanted Him to be, not who He was. Y'all, Jesus' invitation to Him is very simple. Come. Behold. Believe. Follow. No conditions. No exception clauses. No, God, I'll do this if you do this. No strings attached. I ask you this morning, are you committed to Him? If you would, bow your heads with me. And as the band comes up and gets ready to play, yo, I beg of you, ask yourself the questions that I'm going to ask you. The first question I would ask you is simply this, which group are you more like in the story? Do you like those who ran after the gifts rather than the giver? Like those who thought their needs were, were physical, things around them, and not spiritual? Or do you see your true need is Jesus? Have you listened to Jesus? Or have you not? Do you know what Jesus says about his disciples? What they will look like? What they will do? What it means to believe? It's a belief that has life. Have you listened to Jesus? For what he says it means to be a disciple of his. You ought to ask you this morning. Maybe this morning you're like how I was. Grew up in church. I was a good kid. Did right things. Level-headed. Claimed to know Christ, but point blank and simple. My life was about me. I was at the center of my life. I wanted a Savior, but I still wanted to do what I wanted to do. I wanted insurance in case I died, not a Savior for which I could live for while I was still living. Now this morning I want to ask you, are you committed? Are you all in? And if not, I would beg you this morning, will you? Will you give your life to Jesus? Not being afraid of what anybody else in this room will think about you, regardless of what you've looked like. Not being afraid of what someone might say. I want to ask you, if you feel in your heart that you don't know Christ, will you either talk to someone or will you give your life to Him this morning? It's just that simple of saying, Jesus, I need you. I want to repent. I don't want to live my life for myself. I don't want to trust in my own good works anymore. I want to live... For you, I believe that you paid the penalty for me. I believe that you died for me. Will you respond to him this morning?
You know, maybe this morning you're in that spot I talked about earlier where you're just struggling. Will you be reminded of the glorious call that God has called you to? You get to follow Jesus. You get to follow the one who is life, who is light. There are a lot of people standing up here. Lusty to my left, Braden to my right. I have three people standing in the back. I'll be standing up here. If you want to come talk, I beg you, come and talk to one of us. We have several rooms in the back that you can meet in and talk. Maybe you just want to be prayed for. Maybe you want to walk through some of these ideas. Maybe you want to come and say, I need to give my life to Christ. But I beg of you, how do you need to respond this morning? However you feel led to do so, do it now as Cody plays and sings.